You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. We have got a whole lot of Catholic to get through before we start today's show. First up, say a little prayer for Father Travis Clark, who's looking for a new line of work in a very tough job market. Clark is the Catholic priest in Pearl River, Louisiana, who was arrested last week for having kinky sex with two pro-doms in his church on the altar with an iPhone on a tripod recording everything. Someone passing by Saints Peter and Paul Church noticed the lights were on and took a closer look and saw what was happening on the altar and pulled out their phone and started recording the action themselves and called the cops who broke up the threesome and then arrested the priest and both doms. All three have been charged with public obscenity. The lawyer for the pro-doms claims they were not in public view and the person who called the cops was trespassing on church property. So who knows? If the good Lord wills it, Father Clark may yet get off. The Archbishop of Louisiana fired Father Clark immediately and had the altar removed from his church and burned. The Archbishop then came to St. Peter and Paul Church to consecrate a new altar, and all that happened within 48 hours of the story breaking. As a Catholic, I gotta say, it is always refreshing to hear about a Catholic priest who got caught having sex with consenting adults. But as a Catholic, I also gotta say— The swift action taken here by the church, by authorities, is kind of infuriating. Imagine the damage the church could have avoided doing to its finances, to its precious and undeserved moral authority, but most importantly, to countless children all over the world if the church had acted with similar urgency whenever a priest raped a child. Priests who rape kids? Sent to new parishes. Priests who have sex with consenting adults defrocked immediately. Altars with consensual sex cooties all over them burned. Next up on our all-Catholic opening segment, the most pro-life president in history, according to Catholic anti-choice organizations, is alive and well today. Well, he's alive. He's not well. Alive and demented. Alive and tweeting dangerous bullshit in all caps. Alive and holding the country hostage. President Trump is alive right now thanks to a drug developed with fetal stem cells. And Catholic pro-life groups that oppose fetal stem cell research and the use of any drug developed with cells taken from aborted fetuses, they're fine with it in this case, in his case. Business Insider contacted these groups and they said Trump gets a pass because he opposes abortion unless he stands to personally benefit from an abortion, of course. Then he's pro-choice. And so it seems are the leaders of religious anti-choice organizations, Catholic and evangelical. The dirty little secret about so-called pro-life groups and politicians is that they're not opposed to abortion. Author and abortion rights activist Lindy West, yes, Lindy West, someone I respect and whose writing and activism I admire, Lindy West said it best on The Daily Show with Trevor Noah. Anti-choice people are not trying to stop abortion. They're trying to legislate who can and cannot have abortions. Because conservative politicians, uh, their wives and mistresses and daughters are always going to be able to go get an abortion somewhere. And really, all anti-choice rhetoric does and, um, you know, attempts to criminalize abortion um, or to overturn Roe, all that's going to do is keep 
people trapped in poverty and drowning in poverty for generations. That's the goal. And if it wasn't the goal, they would spend their time and money on comprehensive sex education, free birth control, free contraception, um, all the things that actually pro-choice people spend their time on that actually do affect their abortion rate. And that brings us to our next Catholic item this week. Jim and Jeannie Gaffigan, who are Catholics and devout and have the five kids to prove it. Jim Gaffigan is a comedian. He works clean and he is hilarious. I'm a fan. And he's always steered clear of politics in his act. But in late August, he posted what Jeannie calls a highly uncharacteristic profanity-laden rant against President Trump to his Twitter account. If you didn't catch Jim Gaffigan's tweet storm, you're going to want to look it up. And you're going to want to send it to any Catholic you know who's thinking about voting for Donald Trump because he opposes abortion unless, you know, he stands to benefit from that abortion personally. And then you're going to want to look up the op-ed Jeannie wrote for American Magazine, which is a Jesuit publication, about the attacks they've endured since Jim posted his rant to Twitter. Jeannie's piece is headlined, My Loved Ones Told Me Real Catholics Vote for Trump. Here's my response. And you're going to want to send Jeannie's op-ed to any Catholics you know who are voting for Donald Trump too. She makes the case for Catholics supporting Biden, the pro-choice candidate, Racism and the rights of immigrants and access to health care, all pro-life issues too, she argues, as is economic inequality. How can we strive, Jeannie writes, to heal the tragedy of abortion without acknowledging the deep wounds and life-threatening crises that drive people to it? How arrogant we are to condemn women of any color living in poverty faced with the unimaginable and horrific circumstances that would drive them to seek an abortion without taking a good look at how we have failed them by not offering adequate health care, child care, education, and employment opportunities. All right, I loved Jeannie's op-ed, but to be clear, I do not think abortion is a tragedy. And contrary to anti-choice propaganda, very few women who've had abortions regret them. But I'm pro-choice, and a woman who aborted a child she wanted because she couldn't afford to raise that child or even bear that child, she didn't have a choice. Carrying a pregnancy to term is more expensive, crushingly expensive compared to having an abortion. And if anti-abortion activists cared at all about bringing down the number of abortions, in addition to supporting access to contraception and sex education, they wouldn't rest until they'd done something about how expensive it is to have a child. They wouldn't rest until they'd done something about health care. And if they wanted, quote, life protected in law, which is on signs being waved by anti-choicers outside Amy COVID Barrett Senate confirmation hearings, they would be advocating for racial justice too and economic equality. But they aren't because they aren't pro-life. And finally, Republicans are accusing Democrats of being anti-Catholic for opposing Amy COVID Barrett's appointment to the Supreme Court. Let the record show that the first Catholic to be president was nominated by Democrats in 1960, John F. Kennedy, and the next Catholic, To be president, if we all go vote and if our votes get counted, Joe Biden was nominated by Democrats in 2020. If Democrats are anti-Catholic, well, our anti-Catholicism moves in mysterious ways. All right, coming up on today's show on the micro edition of the Savage Lovecast, tons of your cues, lots of my A's. And on the Magnum edition of the Savage Lovecast, Cory Doctorow comes back, joins us on the Magnum to talk about conspiracy theories, texting etiquette, Joe Biden, and his new book, Attack Surface, which comes out this week. All that on today's Lovecast. Hi, Dan. I'm calling in with a quarantine success story. I'm currently living in New Zealand, so we aren't actively quarantining, but 
when we were, it was super difficult for my partner and I, especially for our sex life. Uh, we're in a long-term monogamous relationship, and I definitely wouldn't classify us as super adventurous or kinky. Um, anyways, last week it was my birthday, so we went out to the bars with all my friends, and then the next morning we all decided to go to brunch together like an hour away. So my partner and I driving together, and about like 20 minutes in, we just start bickering. And instead of fighting, I decided I'd rather be sucking his dick. So I start playing with him, and I can tell that he is just throbbing, and he's getting really close. And he abruptly pulls the car over and tells me to sit on his dick. And I'm on my period, so I pull out my tampon, wrap it up, put it to the side, and jump on. I rode him for a few short minutes until he came. And uh, at that point, I was just so aroused and wet because it was very exciting to be doing something out of our, you know, normal sexual routine. So I get back over to the passenger seat and he gives me some of the best oral that he's ever given me. And I came so hard. And it was a really, really nice and memorable first orgasm of my 25th year. The pivot to sex, from conflict to sex. Not all couples can pull that off or pull that out and stick that in. So good on you, caller. And not just a wet-ass pussy, but a wet-and-bloody-ass pussy. So a wabap, I think. And I want to highlight the fact that the sex you had, a little oral sex, a little PIV, not super crazy, not anything outside You're normal, but in a different place at a different time. And that made the kind of normal, vanilla, heterosex that you enjoy so much more exciting. That aligns perfectly with the advice I give people all the time who want to spice up their sex lives. It's not about doing things you've never done before, you're not interested in or that don't turn you on. Sometimes it's about doing the things that do interest you and do turn you on just someplace else, not in your bed, not in the same apartment, not in the middle of the night. And getting out there in your car and fucking the boyfriend in your car. And again, that pivot from conflict to sex, that made normal, regular, vanilla, PIV, and a little bit of oral after to get you off sex. Super hot, super exciting, and super invigorating again. Thank you for calling in and sharing your success story. Hi, Dan. Late 30s to the straight guy calling from the Pacific Northwest. This isn't a sex or romantic dilemma I'm having, but I think it's in your wheelhouse because I feel like you and I are on the same page when it comes to the coronavirus. My in-laws have gradually become more and more laissez-faire about being careful regarding corona. They both have comorbidities that indicate that catching the virus would likely be a death sentence for both of them, yet they have become increasingly bold out of boredom. They hang out maskless with my sisters-in-law, both whom work in jobs where they come in contact with the public on a daily basis. They go to non-socially distanced picnics and barbecues with friends. But when we bring up our concerns to them, they insist they're being careful and that we're overreacting despite the myriad of maskless group selfies they post on social media when at these events. The icing on the cake is that they've just informed us that they're going to take a flight to Southern California to pick up a car for my sister-in-law and road trip it back to the Northwest. They insist they'll be careful, but I know on the way home they'll be going to wineries and restaurants, staying in hotels with shared ventilation, and of course, going to the damn airport to fly. We volunteered to go instead, as we're young, healthy, and, most importantly, very, very careful. But they've already bought plane tickets, and my sister-in-law claims that this is none of our business. My wife's mother has even started to gaslight my wife about her concerns, calling her, quote, dramatic and exhausting, which makes me absolutely furious. 
This leads me to my actual question. I know we can't make them care about this or to act right. What I want to know, is this a situation like homophobic family members where our only leverage is to withhold our presence from their lives? My wife talks to and texts with her parents and sisters on an almost daily basis. I don't want the last interaction we have before they're dying alone in a COVID ward to be negative, but their gradually escalating antics, as well as the gaslighting, has my wife alternatingly furious and depressed at least weekly. What should we do, Dan? It doesn't sound like your in-laws can be reasoned with, so I would encourage you to stop reasoning with them. It sounds like they're only putting themselves at risk. They're not putting you guys at risk, and you don't have a lot of face-to-face, air-droplet-to-air droplet interactions with them. They're going to go to wineries. They're going to go to an airport. They're going to drive a car. They're going to go to a restaurant. It sounds like they're being reckless, but they aren't requiring you to be reckless alongside them. And it can be very frustrating. However, someone is risking self-destruction, it can be frustrating to watch that happen, to warn that person again and again, and be ignored or have your reasonable, as you attempt to reason with them, your reasonable points about the risks they're running shrugged off or then to be accused of being alarmist or (laughs) to be accused of being you know, an asshole. And that can be very deeply frustrating. And at a certain point, you have to decide for yourself whether you're going to continue, again, to try to reason with someone who is being so unreasonable. I don't think this compares to, you know, being the gay kid of crazy homophobic parents who give you endless grief about your sexuality, your sexual orientation, refuse to meet or ever see your boyfriend or welcome to the family who make their love for you clearly conditional. They make it conditional upon you not shoving your sexuality in their face by never bringing up your homosexuality or your sex life, your intimate life again. And that's too high a price to pay, which is why I think queer kids, gay kids with homophobic or transphobic or biphobic families should draw a line in the sand and say, you know, after you come out, you have a year to say every asshole thing, every ask every asshole question. I will answer them. I will be patient. I will role model for you the kind of love and acceptance I would like to see from you. But after that year is up, as my advice for queer kids go, they don't come around. If they can't treat you with love and respect, don't see them. Your in-laws' refusal to listen to reason about the risks of COVID aren't negating who you are, aren't a rejection of who you are, aren't conditional love. It's just stupid bullshit that they're engaging in, risks they're running. And as frustrating as it can be to watch someone take unreasonable risks, there's nothing you can do to stop them. You give them the information. You give them your advice. They take it or leave it. At a certain point, you have to drop it. You can't control them. It does sound on some level like you want to control your in-laws' choices because it would be in their best interest if you could control their choices. If you could impose your choices on them, they would be safer and everyone that they came into contact with would be safer. But I don't think that you have to cut them off and I don't think you should give your wife any grief about staying in touch with her parents or staying in touch with her sister and just avoiding this topic because you've exhausted it. They know how you feel. On some level, they know they're being stupid. And you might end up never seeing them again. They might end up dying alone in a COVID ward hooked up to respirators. Just as the person who won't stop drinking might die from the alcoholism. Just as the person who won't stop smoking might die of lung cancer. Just as the person who is 
sexually reckless and we've all seen them. You know, sometimes we like to point to people whose sex lives are a little bit more interesting or active than ours and accuse them of recklessness. But we've all – we know the difference between someone who's being very sexual and someone who is trying to destroy themselves with sex. But what can you do? You can't slap the dicks out of their asses. At a certain point, you have to – after you've spoken your piece, let them roll their dice and move their mice and disengage on this topic, on whatever the thing is that they're doing that you don't think that they should be doing and that they know that you don't think that they should be doing and to still be in contact with them and touch base with them about the things that you can still talk about. But you're the in-law. You're the brother-in-law. You're the son-in-law. Seems to me that you can. If you can't stand it, you can withdraw from these relationships. You can just go silent. But don't try to control what your wife decides to do and how she decides to manage at this difficult time, her relationship with her parents and her relationship with her sister. Hey, Dan and Nancy and the tech-savvy at-risk youth. I'm a 30-year-old cis female in the Midwest, and I'm calling about a friend who is a 31-year-old cis female in the Midwest. She recently asked me to pet sit for her for a week or two while she goes out to the West Coast to meet a man that she has never met before. While talking with her further about the situation, she explained to me that she has never spoken to this man on the phone, let alone FaceTimed with him. I tried my best without being condescending to explain to her that she should get to know this person a little bit better by at least making a phone call with them. I'm just afraid that he may be catfishing her or may have bad intentions and I care about her a lot. I love her. She's my friend and I don't want her to get hurt. The thing is, is she's a little sensitive and she can easily be manipulated and sometimes can feel like her friends are being condescending towards her. And I don't really know how to explain to her in a way without sounding condescending that this is really scary. So I kind of stopped talking to her about it once I could feel the tension in the room rising and her getting upset and her telling me she doesn't want to speak to this person before she meets him. And I just, I really don't know what to do. Here's what you shouldn't do. You shouldn't pet sit. Your friend is going to do this incredibly stupid thing, incredibly stupid all on its own, doubly stupid in the time of COVID during the pandemic. She's going to do this incredibly stupid thing and go meet up with some stranger in some strange place that she's never spoken to, never seen, has no proof that this person is who they say they are or exists at all, really? That's incredibly dumb and incredibly risky. And she's asking you to help out, to assist her in this stupidity. And I don't think that you should assist her in the stupidity. The, you know, the previous callers, in-laws are, you know, flying to California, picking up a car and driving across the country and taking all these crazy risks. If his in-laws were asking him to pay for the flight, to buy the airline tickets, he should refuse. He could refuse. They didn't ask him to pay for the airline tickets. You're essentially being asked to pay for the airline tickets here. You're being asked to take an action that will enable your friend to do this stupid thing that she should not do, that she should have the sense, the common sense not to do. And you should 
refused. That may impress upon your friend just how stupid and reckless this is. And I think, you know, there are times in a relationship where you got to condescend or you can't let an accusation that you are condescending prevent you from taking somebody figuratively, metaphorically by the shoulders and shaking them until they come to their senses. And this is one of those times where you have to do it. You have to figuratively again, metaphorically take your friend by the shoulders and shake her and risk her getting mad at you. And if she gets mad at you about this bullshit, you need to ask yourself whether you want to continue to have her in your life as a friend. Talk a lot on the show about how good judgment is something we look for in romantic partners and we want to be with people romantically who are in good working order. Not perfect. No one is perfect but good working order. But that just doesn't apply to lovers or, or, or partners or you know friends with benefits. I think that applies to friends too. It's exhausting to be the friend of someone, particularly the on-call friend in cases of emergency. Exhausting to be that person's friend when they do dumb shit over and over and over again. And people have no common sense who refuse to make up for that deficiency, to even recognize that deficiency and then make up for it by relying on the common sense of their friends. Oh my god, there's a point at which that friendship isn't worth it. There's a point at which being that person's friend is just enabling their exhausting stupidity and their self-destructiveness. And you got to ask yourself if you want to enable that kind of bullshit or if you want to make time in your life for other people, for other people who could be as close a friend as this woman is who have good judgment and are in good working order. Finally, the confrontation that I'm encouraging you to have as exhausting emotionally as it might be, could be the last confrontation you have because it could end this friendship. Well, Yahtzee, you win if this person is an exhausting friend to have and you're constantly being put in this position where you have to watch her do stupid, inadvisable things that you've advised her against doing. Well, if she exits your life because of that, it might be in your long-term best interests, but sometimes those confrontations they break through. Sometimes you're not the only one having that confrontation. Sometimes you're the straw that broke the camel's back and that person wakes up. That person realizes in that moment that perhaps they do lack good judgment and common sense. And they realize in that moment they're going to have to rely on the good judgment and common sense of friends and listen to them and take their advice but you can't know that that's the effect that this kind of confrontation is going to have on your friend until after you have the confrontation. So tell her you're not going to sit for her pets and tell her why. Have that confrontation. Hey, Dan. This is 27-year-old this hetero woman calling you from Paris. My boyfriend recently got me the Magnum subscription for our anniversary, so I have been listening to the archives. So I live in Paris, and my boyfriend lives in Philadelphia. And I moved to Paris right at the end of January before there were lockdowns, before there were border closures, et cetera, et cetera. And um, we have uh, been separated by the pandemic. And although I'm working to get him over to France, the French government is being difficult. So my question is, we love each other. We've been together almost four years. We want to stay together, but going months and months and months without any sexual contact is really hard. And thanks to your show, I've been able to broach the topic of consensual non-monogamy. Um, and we've been thinking about what might be the ways best 
to do this. And so I'm calling for your advice because I am a jealous person, but I've dabbled in non-monogamy before. And I think even though I wasn't very good at it when I tried, that I'd like to potentially try again. We've tossed around the idea of maybe trying to find married couples that are looking for a third person or are looking for sex friends so that we are clear that we're not looking for emotional engagement. But yeah, we're both pretty new to this idea and would love to get your advice on how to do it lovingly and so that we don't end up hurting each other and losing each other in the end. Boyfriends who get you Magnum subscriptions to the Savage Lovecast are the best boyfriends. You Obviously, as soon as you can get this guy to France, you've got to marry that man. Marry that man immediately. So how do you do this? How do you allow for some sexual contact with other people while you're separated by the pandemic without risking the relationship? Well, relationships in a way are always at risk. People who are monogamous sometimes end relationships. Monogamy doesn't eliminate all risk. Now, of course, if you're having sex with other people, you may form emotional attachments. You may fall in love with someone else. That presents a unique risk and I'm not in denial about that. But how do you open the relationship? How do you avoid going on and on and on indefinitely having to abstain from sex because your relationship up to this point has been exclusive? Well, sounds like you do what you're doing. You talk with each other. You figure out what might work. You put out there, maybe having sex with only married couples would protect you because you wouldn't then be engaging sexually with someone who was looking for a long-term partner. Certainly an option. I also think at this moment, if it's – you don't say whether it would be a torment to you to know that he's sleeping with other people or if it would be a torment for him to know that you were sleeping with other people. But this kind of – for separation where there are oceans and continents between you is perfect for a DADT where you're not going to tell him what you're up to. It's just understood that you may seek some sexual release elsewhere at this moment when he can't provide you with any and likewise he might do the same. But because you don't want it preying on you, you don't want it preying on him. You don't want to cause each other worry or you know, to make the other one feel bad because it's Friday night and you're in Paris and you're getting laid and he's alone in Philadelphia not getting laid on this particular Friday night. You're just not going to tell each other right now. You'll tell each other later. There will be a weekend when you're finally together where maybe you can have a bottle of wine or a couple of pot edibles and share your dirty stories about your time apart. Hopefully that will turn you guys on and you'll have some exciting, fun adventures to unpack. So I would recommend a DADT. And there are definitely couples out there who are looking for thirds. A lot of the couples who are looking for women as their thirds are, you know, seeking that unicorn, seeking that bisexual woman where they can both interact with her. So you might want to put yourself out there. There are apps for people, dating apps for people, hookup apps for people who are seeking thirds. Your boyfriend may have a little less luck with those apps because most of the couples out there looking for thirds are opposite sex couples looking for a bisexual woman. So maybe your boyfriend will want to put himself out there as a potential bull for cuckold couples, for opposite sex couples who are looking for a man to have sex with the wife or the girlfriend in front of the boyfriend or husband. Not all of those guys are as hypocritical or odious as Jerry Falwell Jr. A lot of those guys are great guys. Your boyfriend could be treasured addition to somebody's relationship, a peak sexual experience 
for someone, for a couple, if he puts himself out there as a bull for cuckold couples. I do want to address really quickly this this idea that you you know you want to seek sex, but you don't want to risk emotional engagement. And maybe it would be best to then get with people in committed relationships because there's no risk out of emotional engagement. And I just want to sort of highlight that and put a pin in that uh, because there are a lot of people out there who think that they have to be, you know, to avoid that kind of emotional engagement. And what I think you mean by engagement is entanglement or emotional complications, catching feelings. And sometimes people think to avoid that, that kind of engagement, entanglement, they have to be cold to someone that they're sleeping with, to, you know, to make sure that they understand that no relationship, no romantic relationship is possible here. Or the person, you know, you going into, you know, that situation, that scenario, having sex with a couple, telegraphing to them that you aren't interested in them emotionally and, you know, holding them at arm's length or even being a bit of a, a dick so that they don't get the wrong idea. And the way you avoid someone getting the wrong idea is being very clear about your intentions. But you do want, even if you're not looking for emotional engagement or entanglements or connections, to provide some emotional sensitivity and a right to expect some emotional sensitivity. You want warmth and consideration even if you aren't looking for an attachment. And if you're having sex with someone, you want to be warm and sensitive to where they're at, to what their needs are, for the time that you're together, even if it's brief. And I just worry because I've heard from so many people who were seeking something brief or temporary that they were treated as disposable or they treated the people that they were sleeping with that way so that nobody got the wrong idea. And again, the way to avoid the wrong idea is to use your words and be clear about your needs, wants, and expectations. It's not to be a dick or hostile or distant, or cold. Anyway, just had to get that off my chest. Good luck. I hope you and your boyfriend are reunited again in France soon and that you have some hot stories to share with each other at that time. Hi, Dan. Late 20s woman from the Midwest. I have been dancing Tropane on and off for about 10 years, and I've just been feeling conflicted lately feeling like essentially I have led customers on numerous times, countless times. Uh, essentially, customers have fallen in love with me, and I would never meet up with a customer outside the club. And I just feel like I'm toying with people's emotions, and it never used to weigh on me until just recently. And I'm just curious what you think about it. Showing what appears to be affection, showing kindness to a client. Waiters do it. Lawyers do it. Hairdressers do it. Bartenders do it. And sex workers do it. Now, a lawyer is selling legal advice. Sex workers are selling a fantasy. And one of the chief fantasies that sex workers sell to their clients is the idea or the impression that the desire here is mutual and the payment is incidental. Sex workers don't say to clients because it would ruin it. Hey, just so we're clear, I think you're disgusting. Just so we're clear, in real life, I would never give you the time of day. You don't have to say that shit any more than a hairdresser has to say, look, I know I'm really nice to you when you're in my chair because I really want a large tip and I want a regular client base. But just so we're clear, I think you're awful. People don't have to disclose that information and people who are 
a part of the service economy, trapped as we all are in late-stage capitalism, understand that that's part of the transaction. The hairdresser letting you think you're friends even if you're not and you're not having any way of really knowing for sure whether they have friendly feelings for you or they're just putting that on and you never knowing for sure whether that hairdresser hates your fucking guts, which sometimes happens and they're just putting it on to get a bigger tip out of you. Or your lawyer thinks you're a terrible human being but likes the $400 an hour so they let you think. They give you the impression. They actively go out of their way to make you think that they like you even when they don't. And the same is true. You know, Sex work is work and the same is true for sex workers. It's a service economy. You have a client and you let them uh, assume or you even go out of your way to give the impression that you like them or appreciate them. And on some level, you do appreciate them. You appreciate the business. You appreciate the income. Are you leading them on in a terrible way? Are you leading them on in a way that's worse than the way all the waiters and hairdressers and lawyers in the world lead their clients on or many of them do? No, I don't think so. Just as you have clients that you probably don't like, you may have clients that you do like. Just like a lawyer might have clients they don't like and clients they do like but the clients they don't like get the impression that they like them and it's inaccurate. The clients they do like, get the impression they like them and it's accurate and you could say the same. And at some point, the responsibility falls to your clients, to these guys. Caveat emptor, which basically means when you're buying something and they're buying your time, they're buying your attention, don't be an idiot. And in the case of a client in a strip club getting a lap dance, succumbing to dickful thinking. Allowing yourself to believe that this isn't a commodified transaction is to be an idiot, is to fail at the caveat emptor thing. So I don't think you need to feel bad. So long as you're providing a quality service and so long as it is or should be understood by all that part of the service that you provide here is this fantasy of mutual attraction, mutual affection, mutual desire – you don't have to feel bad about doing your job well. Hey, Dan and Nancy and the tech-savvy at-risk youth. I got myself into a really fucked-up situation of my own making. I'm riddled with guilt about it, and I just need to find out how to fix it. I'm in my mid-30s. I've been with my partner for 15 years. We recently adopted her three young cousins. My partner's pretty ace. I'm hypersexual. She's straight and prefers monogamy. I'm poly, pan, and gender-fluid. She wants sex about once every month or two, and it's usually very vanilla because that's the only thing she's really into. It's been the source of a lot of problems for us in the past. I've made some really big mistakes. I've emotionally and physically cheated on her. About two years ago, I tried to end it because of a lot of that. But she said that she wanted to try it again and would give it a chance, would give an open relationship a chance. The parameters of that were that it can't be someone I know. I can only sleep with them once, and I cannot maintain contact with them afterwards. She didn't want to know any of the details, but wanted to know when it was happening and that it was happening. The open relationship didn't go super well. She wasn't into it. She was always guilty, always worried I was going to leave her, and so I agreed to stop. But again, I messed up. I broke the rules. I wasn't really into the one-night stand thing. 
I started seeing a friend with benefits. We can call her Lucy. And we have become closer and closer. And despite both of us trying not to, we've fallen in love. Since that happened, my primary partner and I adopted these kids. They had nowhere else to go. And now Lucy feels like she is a dirty little secret and wants to be more a part of our lives. And I don't want to lie anymore. But my primary partner has said that if she ever found out I cheated again, she would take the kids and leave. They've had enough trauma, and I'm the closest thing they've ever had to a father. So I really don't know what to do. She must know on some level because Lucy is always over here. I talk about her a lot. She even jokingly calls her my other wife, and she really actually really likes her. I want Lucy to be more a part of our lives, um, even if my partner can't ever see her as our third, I would like for her to at least accept that I have a second. My partner will always be my primary, but if I were to tell her directly, she might leave with the kids. Lucy thinks that I should just tell her everything, and that if she really loves me, she will stay. I think that she might slowly get used to the idea if I start small and work my way up. She has said that she can accept my poly nature, or that she will at least try to, but maybe if I start by telling her that Lucy's a very intimate friend, that she could help us with the kids more often, and that she can fill a role in my life that my partner can't or isn't interested in, I just think that as the increase in closeness becomes more and more acceptable, that eventually we can get to the point where I can be completely open and honest with my partner about my feelings towards Lucy. Um, but Lucy worries that my partner has no reason to accept that because as far as she knows, things are going great right now and she has nothing to gain by adding Lucy into the mix. So do I tell my partner everything and risk losing her and sending these kids into more turmoil? Or do I slowly roll it out and risk Lucy's emotional well-being as she waits for something that might not ever happen? There's no slow roll here. There's no gradual realization There is a point, a definitive point in this timeline when your partner goes from thinking you aren't fucking Lucy, which given the details you shared, frankly sounds delusional, to knowing you're fucking Lucy. And the more lies you've told her, even if they were lies she wanted to hear, and I think that's part of what's going on, or they were lies that you determined were in the best interest of your kids. And if you adopted her cousins, they are your kids now too – That's not going to soften the blow. That's going to make it worse. I think you need to go to your partner and tell her everything and tell her everything now. I don't think it's fair to Lucy, particularly she's going to be more involved in your lives and in the lives of these kids. And I think that would be a good thing. And that's often something that people who are from, who grew up in polyamorous families talk about as an advantage of growing up in a polyamorous family, that there were more loving adults around, more hands on deck. And if it's the two of you and three kids, having Lucy around as an acknowledged partner and an acknowledged, at least emotional co-parent could benefit these kids and lighten your load and your primary partner's load. Your nameless, I think, primary partner. You don't give a name for her. Your nameless primary partner's load. And hopefully your partner won't then act on her threat to take the kids and go. She won't act on her threat to hold these kids uh, hostage in this situation. And I, yeah, you're presenting her with a, a, a fait accompli. You're presenting her with a kind of 
emotional and sexual ultimatum. You agreed to close the relationship back down after you opened it up because the rules that your partner demanded for openness were clearly unworkable, clearly designed to be unworkable, and you caved when you shouldn't have caved, and you stayed when you probably should have left. And now here you are, the newly adoptive parents of three children, and what are you going to do? Well, you're obviously not willing because you obviously aren't going without regular sex and affection from someone who's not a soft or gray ace, which is the case it seems for your primary partner. And the question then becomes, will your partner, your primary stay in this relationship with you? Because it's frankly in her own best interest to accommodate Lucy and it's also in the best interests of these children. But one way or another, particularly if Lucy is going to be more involved in your life and the lives of these children and the life of your partner, your partner is going to find out. Your partner is going to get to a point where she can't lie to herself anymore about what's going on and I think it would be better for you, better for your primary partner, better for Lucy, better for these kids if she didn't arrive at that point on her own, if she didn't have to figure it out and then she didn't sit there rehearsing, itemizing in her head all of the lies that you told her before she realized what she should have known and may have known but now can no longer deny. That the guy that she's been with for 15 years, the guy who has a much higher libido than she has, the guy who has told her that a poly relationship model is what he wants and prefers and would make him happy is the guy that he always said he was. And she can be in a relationship with that guy or she can, I guess, take the kids and go. But if you adopted them too – even if you guys were to divorce now or separate now, you would still legally be a parent to those children. And if you and Lucy are a couple then, well, then Lucy will still be in your life. Maybe she'll be your primary then and then also in a position to help you raise your kids with your ex. But hopefully it won't come to that. Hopefully you can make this little poly family that kind of already exists work. We're going to take a quick break from the calls to speak with Corey Doctorow, author, activist. He writes daily at the blog slash newsletter Pluristic.net, works as a special advisor to the Electronic Frontier Foundation, also known as the EFF. His new book, Attack Surface, is a standalone sequel to Little Brother and Homeland, which were both New York Times bestsellers. Hey, Corey, how are you doing? Dan, it's a pleasure to be back on. I'm very well, or as well as I can be during a plague and in the midst of impending fascist takeover of the country. Tell me about your new book. Sure. So uh, Little Brother and Homeland uh, were the first two books. This is a standalone sequel, but they're about uh, a young man in San Francisco who ends up fighting the Department of Homeland Security after they take over his city after a terrorist attack and basically working with other kids to take back their city, take back the Bill of Rights and so on. This third book, it stands alone and it's about a different main character. It's about Masha, who's at the beginning and the end of the other two books as a kind of antagonist. She starts off working for the DHS and then for private security contractors. And then by the third book, she's actually working for these big firms modeled on like Palantir and the NSO group, making cyber weapons to put down democratic revolutions in the former Soviet Union. 
And she reaches a point where she can't do this anymore. And she comes home to San Francisco and discovers to her horror that her childhood best friend is now a Black Lives Matter activist in Oakland and is being targeted by the same cyber weapons that she built to attack these democratic revolutions. And at that point, she has a, like a moral reckoning with what it is she did for her whole career and, and her complicity in using technology that she fell in love with because it gave her so much freedom and power to take away other people's freedom, power, and agency. I'm old enough to remember the dawning of the internet age and everything we were told was that these new technologies were going to liberate us and connect us and they were going to fuel and power uh, movements for social justice and progress. That hasn't come to pass or it doesn't seem as if it's coming to pass. It seems as if Facebook at all are dismantling democracy? Well, I think that it can be both at once. And, you know, one of the things about the Little Brother books that made them uh, so enduring and that carries on in this one is that they really use the narrative to talk about some pretty abstract technical questions. You know, I, I've lost track of the number of like cryptographers and cyber lawyers and so on who've come up to me and said, you know, I, I got into this job because I read Little Brother and I came to understand what technology could do mm -hmm. and what it might do. Right. Like like not just why I should be excited about what we can deliver to people, but why I should be afraid that if we don't do that, we could get into a lot of trouble. And, you know, I think that when you look around and ask yourself, how is it, for example, that people now are able to talk about gender in such a more intelligent and nuanced way? You know, there's kind of two hypotheses, either like all of the different ways of talking about gender just happened in the last, you know, 10 years, because before that, people didn't feel all of the feelings that lead them to talk about gender this way. Or technology allowed people to finally talk about something that wasn't available to them, right? The way they would face social reprisal if they just woke up one day and said, I feel this way that I've never heard anyone talk about. Uh, does anyone else feel this way? It lets people who have any kind of disfavored idea that might attract social sanction, find other people who share that idea. And the bad side of that is that if your idea that might attract social sanction is like, I want to march through the streets of Charlottesville carrying a tiki torch chanting, Jews will not replace us. It lets you whisper that truth about your horrible identity before you shout it in the streets and figure out how to make that part of your identity public. But it also lets you do that if you feel like there should be Medicare for all or if you feel like uh, Black Lives Matter. Right. And so right. we're, we're living through both. And the question is, how do we get the good stuff without the bad stuff? Yeah, how do we get, you know, people talk uh, in the furry community about how the Internet really kind of connected all these people all over the world who have this very niche interest, sexual for some folks, non-sexual for others. But it also brought the alt-right together. And, you know, mm -hmm. in some ways, I, 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 you know, I created the It Gets Better Project 10 years ago. And one of the things I said constantly when I was interviewed about social media, because some kids who were queer were being harassed on social media. Um, and it was contributing to suicides was, you know, these technologies are a hammer and you can pick it up and you can build a house or you can pick up that hammer and beat somebody's brains out. And it sometimes when, you know, I open the news in the morning, it feels like more people are using these technologies to beat other people's brains out than to build things. You know, I think people are doing both. And I am never going to be the person who says we should make it harder for people with disfavored ideas to find each other because, mm -hmm. you know, I'm not, I'm, I am, we, as we joked about the last time I was on, I am like a straight, cis, het, white 
middle-class dude. But even I have had the, my share of things that I wasn't sure about where having the private realm where I could find other people and talk about them and kind of try my ideas out in a whisper before I, I, I started shouting them from a podium was really important and helpful to me. And, and it really aided in my own kind of development as a, like a fully fledged human being who I think is better for it. I think that when you want to look at the rise of these movements that we don't like, the fact that people who feel this way can find each other is bad, but maybe we should think a little harder about why people feel this way, right? Like, so I just published another book as it happens. I've got, I've got four books out in 2020 because when there's a plague on and you can't tour, that's when you want to do all of your publishing. Uh, <laughs> and this book is, called, <laughs> and, and the book is called um, How to Destroy Surveillance Capitalism. And it came out on one zero last week. And it's kind of a response to Shoshana Zuboff in her book about surveillance capitalism, where she really says, maybe all these people believe these terrible things because they've been brainwashed by technology. Maybe if you're like a Sengali of racism, you can use machine learning to you know trick people into becoming racist and i think that another way to believe or to understand the rise of conspiracism is to go like do people believe in conspiracies because conspiracies have more explanatory power and i think they do and i think the thing that gives them more explanatory power is that so much of our policy sphere is dominated by what amounts to a conspiracy right like why do the sacklers get to market oxycontin and kill 200, you know, launch the opioid epidemic that killed 200,000 Americans and get richer than the Rockefellers. That's because the FDA let them get away with it. And because, you know, they were already rich and powerful and rich and powerful people kind of have each other's back. There's a lot of class solidarity among billionaires. Uh-huh. And, you know, when you are in a world where 737 maxes are falling out of the sky and, you know, the CDC wakes up one morning and says, no, don't get tested uh, because that's what the Trump appointee says you should do. And where universities are packed with the kids of rich people who turned out to have bribed their, their way in and so on. If someone says, hey, there's a conspiracy afoot that explains this other thing that makes you miserable, it has the ring of plausibility. And I'm not saying we'd get rid of all conspiracies if we eliminated corruption, but it would certainly make conspiracy less plausible. There's another element, though, to, I think, the appeal of conspiracism, which is a word I haven't heard before, and I love it, um, which is narcissism. That on some level, conspiracy theories appeal to an individual's narcissism because it's a way of saying, I am smarter, I see more, I understand something at a deeper level than all of you idiots out there who believe whatever it is you read in the New York Times or the Washington Post or from reliable sources. I found this video on YouTube that links and explains everything and I'm special because I got it. I get it. And how do you, how do you address that? How do you address that narcissism? It's it's a similar to the narcissism that underlines a lot of faith traditions. Like I'm saved. You know, I think that, that the quest to want to be meaningful and to make a difference in the world isn't, necessarily narcissistic. There's probably a pathological version of it, but wanting to matter, wanting to be in charge of your own destiny and to help steer the destiny of your community, especially in a time of crisis, Mm -hmm. you know, coronavirus, but also like the climate emergency and, and the widening inequality emergency. And maybe that's part of the appeal right now is there's so many ways in which we're not in charge of our own destinies anymore. So many ways in which we're helpless. And that makes this shit more appealing. 
Well, sure. And, you know, 40 years of like neoliberal doctrine that says like, well, if you don't like Facebook, just stop using Facebook. You know, I am a Zucker vegan and I pay a price for it <laughs> because I can't hang out with my friends. Right. Like the idea that you can shop your way out of monopoly capitalism is as absurd as the idea that um, you can solve the climate crisis by being better at recycling. Right? I'm, not on, I'm not on Facebook either, but I don't have friends. That's how I fix that. <laughs> yeah, well, fair enough. I, I <laughs> am an expat twice over. I was a Canadian and then a Briton, and now I'm a Californian. And so, you know, I, I, it really does distance me from people in my life. And a lot of my family members, I, I'm really now distant from more so than I was in the age of email, where everybody emailed everyone else. It was annoying and you got forwarded memes and stuff. But now those people just drop off my radar. And, you know, the only time I hear from them is when they, they send me a paperless post announcement of a baby, you know, uh, as opposed to like an actual email. Like the only way I can find out what the paperless post is about is by opening it, turning off all my anti-tracking stuff and then letting paperless post invade my privacy in, in 27 ways from asshole to appetite just to find out that my cousin has had a baby, you know. <laughs> OK, once again, the book is the new book is Attack Surface published by? It's published by Tor, uh, the science fiction imprint of Macmillan. It comes out on October the 13th. There's also a, an audio book that we just finished mastering that Amber Benson from Buffy read. There's a, a, a Kickstarter for that starting uh, next week and in, in the second week of September. Um, and, uh, you know, I won't be touring, but I'll be doing lots of events uh, because if there's anything people like to do at the end of a long workday, it's sit down and watch me on Zoom. And so you can tune in to many of those. Okay. So before we let you go, we want to throw a couple of Savage Love questions at you because why the hell not? We yeah. don't have time to kill. Um, and I think you're ideally suited uh, to tackle this first one with me. Hi, Dan. I'm a 57-year-old, cisgendered, heterosexual man. My wife and I have been married for 35 years and we have two adult sons. One is 24, lives with us, and is in college presently. The older son is 26, working, and in a long-term stable relationship. Our oldest son is transgender and his girlfriend is African-American. Our sons are fighting about politics and it's tearing the family apart. It's not what you might think. We all hate Trump and the entire GOP with a white-hot passion. Our entire family is very left-leaning, like left of AOC left. The problem is that the rest of us are not nearly woke enough for our older son and his girlfriend. Even the slightest disagreement over a minor detail in their orthodoxy of beliefs creates horrible conflicts. And now our older son has disowned his younger brother, calling him racist, misogynist, trans, and homophobic. None of these characterizations is even remotely true in any respect. Our younger son is a true ally for full equality of all people. At a broader level, we also worry that this attitude is reflective of others in the activist crowd. The sort of attack our older son is making on his younger brother is, is really divisive, and it undermines the coalition we should be building to take back our country. We worry that it really turns people off and ultimately will help reelect Trump. And if that happens, then all of us will be well and truly fucked. Meanwhile, this is tearing our family apart. Help us, Dan. What do we do? All right, Corey is the straight, cis, white, middle class dude. I, I really think that uh, you should tackle this one, this conflict. 
Yeah, yeah. As as I was saying before the the call, we're really an ideal pair for it because you know we've got we've got both kinds here. We got country and western. You know, we've got the 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 straight white middle class dude and the not straight white middle class dude. <laughs> and who else do you need and both to represent us, the Rainbow Coalition? Right, and both of us sissies. All right, the you know a quick yeah. caveat: um, the the caller doesn't mention what the disagreements are about. So we're just going to have to, as is often the case with this kind of, you know, sex advice or relationship advice racket, accept the caller's premise that these are minor disagreements and the younger son isn't actually doing or saying anything transphobic, homophobic, or misogynist. This does seem to be an issue in the activist crowd that, you know, there's a term for it, the narcissism of small differences. You get angriest or angrier at people who are very close to you politically or socially, even in your own family, who disagree with you on something minor while you're not directing a lot of anger at people who disagree with you about everything because they're not in your family or in your social circle or you know in the people's front of judea with you or the judean people's front whichever one you joined and 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 there's all this rage and people are likely to get into these kind of conflicts with people they mostly agree with because you mostly hang out with people you mostly agree with isn't that right yeah, I think there's obviously something to that. I think that we have some pretty special circumstances here, right? So here are these folks with these two adult kids who are living at home. Presumably part of the reason they're all living at home is because they're all stuck indoors because of the global pandemic that has been horribly you know, uh, bungled by our national government and there's no end in sight and everyone is living in a pressure cooker. And that could be enough to magnify small differences. There's a, there's a, a wonderful uh, Canadian film board a uh, short film called The Big Snit that if you haven't seen it, you must see. And it's about a couple who are just locked indoors and periodically he'll start sawing the table and she'll say, stop sawing the table. And he'll say, I'm not sawing your table. You're shaking your eyes. And she takes her eyes off her face and starts rattling them like a maraca. And she's like, no, I'm not <laughs> shaking my eyes. You know, you're always shaking your eyes, shaking your eyes here, shaking your eyes there. So like certainly being trapped indoors is a part of it. And I, you know, Occam's razor says we should look for the parsimonious explanation, the one with the fewest exotic phenomena to explain it. Like either your son, who is perfectly reasonable uh, and a decent chap all along, suddenly has become kind of some weird identitarian um, sectarian monster who you have to walk on eggshells around or everyone's just a little touchy. Right. So that would be like my the first thing I would reach for is just read all of the advice that there is for people who aren't to the left of AOC and trying to figure out how to manage sectarian conflicts within their, uh, within their, uh, uh, people's Republic. And just, just start with the advice for people who are families stuck indoors with each other and see where you get that said, I want to, I want to do a little Lorax speaking for the trees for people who get upset about these minor differences, because, you know, as you know, the candidate I favored in this coming election is not the candidate uh, that got selected by the Democratic Party, uh, nor was my second choice, nor my third choice, nor my fifth choice, nor my eighth choice. <laughs> and and I know you're a blue no matter who person here. Um, and, and my first choice didn't I, get I, it either. My first choice was Warren and Biden was four yeah. or five back for me too. Yeah. And, you know, I think that for some people, there is a legitimate sense of grievance when that happens because some people uh, are justified in thinking that the party leadership know that the worse Trump is, the worse the Democratic candidate can be Mm -hmm. without losing their vote. And you feel like 
the, I call it the shit sandwich uh, theory of political science here, right? Do you want to know how bad Trump's shit sandwich tastes? It tastes a lot worse than the shit sandwich we're asking you to vote for. And so the worst Trump's shit sandwich is, the worst that Trump's sandwich, the, uh, the shit sandwich that you're being asked to eat can be. And at a certain point, it's easy to feel resentful about being asked to eat a shit sandwich. And, yeah. and I have substantive, meaningful policy problems with 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 the current candidate and with the platform as do i there's a lot of bernie that got folded into that platform they had their little committee meetings to hammer out policy proposals that would attract bernie and his folks and and, and i gotta say like that's that's voting folks uh i voted for obama even though he was opposed to gay marriage and not just opposed to it but said you know framed his opposition to gay marriage in frankly insulting terms said yep. on television into a microphone that when a man marries a woman, God is present. And the implication was when a dude marries a dude, Liberace is present. I guess it's the most charitable interpretation, <laughs> but I think, you know, what fundy Christians took away from that and some voters who might have been tempted to vote for Obama, who were people of faith, took away from that was him saying that when a dude marries a dude, Satan is present. And I voted for the motherfucker sure. anyway. We all are always in a position of having to do that. Politics is definitely the art of compromise, but you have to ask who's being asked to compromise and what they're being asked to compromise on. So, you know, when when we hear from the candidate that he's not opposed to fracking and when I look at the weather forecast for the city I live in and find out that it's going to be 112 degrees on Sunday, um, it, it starts to feel like it's not merely that I might be deprived of some fundamental human right, but that my daughter's career choices have narrowed to making or using poles to dig through rubble to look for canned goods or helping people purify their u- uh, urine so they can drink it. Come you on, know? you're smarter than this. I know it because I've read your books uh, and your articles and I follow you on Twitter. You're smarter than this. Yeah, he's got to say he's not opposed to fracking to win the election and then ideally gets in and institutes, you know, green reforms and backs renewable energies to the point where fracking withers and dies on the vine. Like he's got to assemble the votes. And sometimes you got to like Obama on gay marriage to get there, to get to that majority or in Biden's case, a supermajority to, you know, overcome voter suppression and Trump's attempts to rig the election. He's going to have to like shine some people. And, you know, I didn't believe Obama in 2008 when he said he was opposed to gay marriage because he'd supported it previously and nobody goes from supporting to opposing to supporting. There's a one-way track on marriage equality. And so when Mm. Biden says that he's not against fracking, I kind of don't believe him. And I think that if he moves on renewable energies, in the end, he's helping to end fracking without saying I'm going to end fracking and lose the election. Well, I hope you're right. You know, for me, I had the opposite experience, right? I watched Obama lead the vote that immunized the phone companies from from liability for mass surveillance, from constitutional mass surveillance. And, you know, like I'm not a one issue voter, but I that there are some issues that are pretty important to me. Mass surveillance is one of them. And I should know for the record, as a Canadian, I don't get a vote. I just get to vote the way Republicans do by giving money to candidates. Uh, because I'm a, I have a green card, so I can do that. I just don't actually get to go to the ballot box. But I watched him, you know, lead that vote to immunize the phone companies and then promise that when he got into office, he would hold them to account. And then he got into account, into, into office and did the reverse. So, you know, if when they're selling us out, they're promising to do better and then they do worse, 
what are they going to do if when they're selling us out, they don't promise to do better? Are they going to do even worse than that? Like, is it some kind of weird, like, uh, you know, triple secret jujitsu where it's only when they're not saying that they regret doing the wrong thing that we can hope that they'll do the right thing. Anyway, we're getting a little far afield. <laughs> we are. But we I want to say that like between the, the explanation that this person is just some kind of touchy nut job and that everyone who gets angry about this stuff is some touchy nut job and the explanation that says they're always right is the explanation that says under difficult times, People sometimes express themselves regrettably, that young people sometimes struggle to moderate the way that they talk about these issues and to uh, look past their immediate emotional response and to think about how to get through it and how to build coalitions that go longer. And, you know, in, in Little Brother, one of his realizations is that his movement that starts with the slogan, don't trust anyone over 25, can only succeed by bringing in people who are over 25, right? And so, you know, maybe it takes a while to, to, to get there in your journey. Um, and, and, and that, you know, the, the answer is going to have to be that everybody gives a little, right? right? That, that his brother learns to be, that the son learns to be a little less touchy about stuff and to, to be compassionate, to talk things through and that the other side does the right. listening that they need to do to do the hard work, to figure out what they're doing. You know, we got to say, you know, when somebody trans says something's transphobic, you got to pay attention to that. That doesn't mean every trans person is right at all times. Trans people are fallible, like they're people. And when a person of color says something sure. racist, you got to pay more attention to that. Um, that said, you know, sometimes these arguments about minor disagreements is how you bring people over to your side of the disagreement. And it is harder to do that if you attack people uh, for having that it's disagreement true. rather than engaging around the disagreement. I do want to say, though, uh, and we have one more call I want to get to uh, for you, a little easier right. one, um, that, yeah. uh, you know, the, the dad caller, you're worried that this sort of behavior um, if this is indeed what's happening, is going to, you know, the divisiveness and the screaming and yelling and the flipping out about the slight disagreements is going to reelect Trump because it's going to turn people off, you know, the the left and send them to Trump. And, you know, the evidence that that isn't probably going to happen is the fact that you aren't yourself, caller, voting for Trump. You've been mm -hmm. exposed to this and so you're immune. You're others won't be as you are immune to this and able to still see the greater good, the larger goal of getting that motherfucker out of the goddamned White House. Corey, we're going to play one more for you. Sure. Hello, Dan. What is up? I have a question about texting. So I'm texting this guy right now, and this is one example, but it's definitely happened to me before. And I have a big fat crush on him, and sometimes he will respond in like two minutes, and sometimes he will respond in like a day. And I find texting him to be simultaneously addicting and torturous because I think about him like all the time. And when he doesn't respond to me for a day, it makes me feel like he's not thinking about me in the same way that I'm thinking about him. And he has told me he's not good at being on his phone. He's not a very responsive texter. And in a lot of ways, I like guys who are not addicted to their phones i find it attractive when guys are more into their own reality than into their phone so definitely um not texting me back for a little bit <laughs> is cool but yeah i don't know i'm kind of wondering how much is someone just being like i not good at my phone i don't like using my phone versus like they're just not that into you or they're just not thinking about you you know like how legit is this excuse? And 
um, should it concern me? We're definitely just at like a flirtation and a semi-regular hang status right now. So I wouldn't want to say anything, but I anticipate that if things were to go further, that I would say something to make myself feel more comfortable in the relationship and so that he would know kind of how I'm feeling in regards to that. So I don't know, what would also be a good way to bring that up in a way that doesn't make him feel like I'm micromanaging his texting. I just, yeah, <laughs> wanted to text back faster. Okay, let me know. Okay, so you have some relevant lived experience here because uh, you sleep with women or woman. Mm-hmm. Making all sorts of assumptions. We have a woman here who says, uh, I've always wanted to be with a guy who's not constantly on his phone, but now I'm with this guy who doesn't text me back instantly and I'm mad. Is that a woman thing? So I'll tell you what the lived, the relevant lived experience here is, is that I am a real-time communications aphobe, right? A lot of people don't like to talk on the phone. I also don't like to, uh, to exchange instant messages. And my wife... Uh, is uh, very oriented towards instant messages. She also hates to talk on the phone. And when we were courting, when we just started dating, I left my instant messenger on because it was important to her, especially when we started, we were living in, on different continents. But even after I moved to London, I left it on for her. And that ended one day when I got a text from her on AOL Instant Messenger saying, have you got a minute? I need to talk to you about something. It's really important. And I wrote back immediately and said, yes, of course, tell me what it is. And she didn't answer. And I waited for like five minutes and I wrote, come on, what's going on? And she didn't answer. And 10 minutes later, I, 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 I did it again. And then I called her phone. She didn't answer. And I was like sweating bullets. And then finally, after an hour, she texted back and said, you know, I forget what it was. I went out for lunch and left my phone on my desk. <laughs> that was the last day. I left my instant messages on to her for a decade. So I am maybe the wrong guy to ask because I, I, I just, you know, computers are interruption machines mm-hmm. and I, um, m- the most important relationships in my life are digitally mediated and have been probably for a lot longer than kind of the median person listening to this. You know, I, I, my dad was bringing home acoustic couplers from the university of Toronto in 1977 when I was six years old. And I was like, text texting on this mainframe we were connected to to other kids whose dads had brought home teletype terminals right so you know like i i get that but for me send me an email so that i can put it in my to be answered file as opposed to sending me an instant message that just gets lost in the constant river and i'm going to be a very happy man in fact if you send me an instant message that i can't reply to right now i will send myself an email saying go find dan's instant message and reply to it later because otherwise i won't i'm in a relationship with someone who uh doesn't respond promptly to texts and i'm a i'm a texter to such a point that i think i have arthritis in both thumbs now uh, so I sympathize <laughs> with the caller, but I've had to, I've had to learn to accept that uh, the person I'm in a relationship with um, isn't going to text me back, and it doesn't mean anything. Doesn't mean he's not into me. It just means he's not into his phone or attached to his phone mm-hmm. the same way I sadly am. And it's a long distance relationship, which makes it all the more complicated. Yeah. Um, but when we're together, he does this amazing thing where he makes me leave my phone at home when we go for a bike ride or a walk or something. And ah, the withdrawal symptoms nice. are, are painful, but uh, it's a good break. 
Well, and the medium is so undifferentiated, right? So like one of the problems with, with our phones is that they're trivial and they're portentous. And so we're getting all of that at once. And, you know, the same thing with instant messaging. I'm, I, you know, this caller doesn't go into detail, but I'd be surprised if there wasn't stuff that was both significant and stuff that was trivial in her communications with her partner, where, you know, one day it's like, we got to talk about this important relationship thing. And the next day it's just like, I just ate the fluffiest pancake for breakfast, right? And it's totally cool to have that conversation, but it's, it's hard to know how much weight to give your phone's chimes if both of those messages could be at the other end of the chime. And, you know, some of us, we do this really pathological thing where we assume that every chime is like, you need to answer this because it's your doctor who has just looked at some old test results and discovered you have a brain tumor and you've got 15 minutes to get it treated. And then a bunch of us are like, you know what? Almost all of it is like, uh, uh, you know, erectile dysfunction spam and uh, cryptocurrency hucksters and random messages about people's pancakes. I'm just going to ignore all the chimes. And maybe what they need is to have two different instant messaging tools, right? Like you could use Signal, which everyone should be using and not using unencrypted messaging. It's free. It's easy. Use Signal and use Signal to send messages about things that are like... um, uh, uh, really important. And then get another messaging tool like, I don't know, one, one of the other secure tools. Uh, uh, you know, even WhatsApp is pretty good, e- although I don't think you should be giving any data to Mark Zuckerberg. And use that for your trivial stuff. And, and then he knows when the bat phone rings, he's got to answer it. And when it's just like thinking of you, honey, he can leave that for later. Corey Doctorow, author, activist, blogs daily at his newsletter at pluralistic.net author of the new book just coming out attack surface standalone sequel to little brother and homeland which were both new york Times bestsellers Corey, thank you so much it's always a blast chatting with you thank you dan hi dan mid-20s calling with what might be a dumb question but i've been dating my partner for about two years things are honestly really great i feel like i love him more almost every day Um, And yeah, things are getting, you know, more serious and I like think about creating a future with him and getting married one day and in the back of my mind I have this kind of nagging feeling that I would love your help getting some clarity on. I feel like when I hear about couples who get married, like some of them, I don't know, like they meet and they just know immediately that that's their husband Um, and they have such certainty. And I, I don't, I mean, I, I love him a lot and, um, you know, I recognize his flaws as much as I recognize his virtues and I think we would work well together, but I, is the fact that I don't know what the future might hold indicative of some kind of, I don't know, reservations that I'm not able to like process on the surface When you met Terry, did you know he was the one? Do most people know that their partner is the one? I know I don't need to know after two years, but, you know, I'm starting to really invest in this relationship. We might move in together, and I guess I'm just wondering, like, are there always doubts? Or should I I be more certain at this point? There's a moment in the musical company where uh, a single person who's wrestling with the idea of commitments, what the musical's about, about marriage, commitment, uh, relationships, the single person asks a long-married friend if he's ever sorry he got married. 
And I just love – it's such a genius. Stephen Sondheim is just such a genius. The, the, the response from the, the married person who's just been asked this question, you ever saw you got married, is – and it's in song but I will spare you my singing voice and not sing it. You're always sorry. You're always grateful. If you marry this person, if you commit to this person for life, whether you marry him or not, theoretically for life, you're always free to go. Will there be moments that you regret that decision? Abso-fucking-lutely. Does that mean that person that you're with isn't quote-unquote the one? Well, that flips us into a whole other conversation. You must be a new listener. People who have been listening for a long time might want to use that little button to skip ahead because you're going to have to hear my thoughts about the one again for the millionth time. There is no the one. We're told there's one person out there for us, the perfect person. And people will pass on someone who's nearly perfect for them because they get the sense that they're not totally perfect. They worry there might be a more perfect for them person out there because they've heard this idea. You know, They've got this idea. The myth of the one is stuck in their head. And in reality, there is no one. There is, if you are lucky, a few 0.64s out there they might stumble over. If you're really lucky, a 0.78 and it's your job to round that motherfucker up to one. You make that person the one. And you know what? You're not there the one either. You're not a one. You're a 0.64. You're a 0.78 if they're lucky. And there's a beauty and a compliment in being treated like the one by someone who knows you're a 0.64 or a 0.78 if they're lucky and by someone that you know knows you're a 0.64 or a 0.78. But they treat you like the one. And in that, that, that being treated like the one that can turn somebody into the one. It's the only thing that can turn somebody into the one because there is no one. The one is a lie. Someone treating you like the one, that's real. But in the end, you know, caller, you want to know how you know for sure. And the answer is as unsatisfying an answer as it is. You don't know. You can never know. Something else that annoys me about this, the one shit, is it puts way too much emphasis and value on relationships that terminate in funeral homes, two people who are together until death parts them. Well, obviously, they were perfect for each other. Obviously, that was a perfect relationship, a successful relationship because one person is dead. And if two people are together for a time and then they break up, if they're married for a time and then the marriage ends, well – they obviously weren't the one for each other. That person wasn't the one for her because she divorced him. In reality, someone can be the right one for you now, the right husband for you now, but not the right husband for you always. You fear committing to this man because there's something in your head about commitment being eternal. And it's not eternal. It's conditional. And there may be moments in your time where you have to recommit where you have to decide to stay even when you want to go and then hopefully a moment will come and hopefully it will come soon where you're glad you stayed and didn't leave. But you're going to live. You know, If you're in a committed long-term relationship that's open-ended, you're going to live in that point between sorry, always sorry, and grateful, always grateful. And if you can't handle that ambiguity, if it's too much of an existential torment to you, well, then maybe – you don't want to move in with this guy or any guy ever because what you can't know about this guy, 
you won't know about any guy. And if you can't live with that, maybe you shouldn't live with anyone. All right, before we get to your response calls, let's read your tweets. First, happy birthday to the ghost of Del and G who subscribed to the Lovecast, to the Magnum Edition of the Savage Lovecast as a birthday gift to himself. All right, naughty threesome tweets. Dan Savage discussed alternative names for vaginal secretions, but I haven't heard gruel come up. It's well entrenched on Reddit. Oh, yeah, Reddit. I forgot to look there for a term to describe evidence of female sexual arousal. Forgive me this oversight, but we did already entertain and reject gruel, a portmanteau of girl and drool due to its problematic homonym, gruel, G-R-U-E-L, a thin porridge eaten by peasants, sometimes served as a punishment or consumed as a penance. Yeah, no, gruel won't work, especially in a world where we now have WAP. At Sergeant McN21 tweets, hey, at fake Dan Savage, add me to the list of 30-something-year-old men who are now HPV vaccinated, thanks almost entirely to your podcast, hashtag Savage Lovecast. Congratulations, Sergeant McN21, for getting vaccinated. And I hope more men out there who are not yet vaccinated of any age follow your lead, take my advice, and get vaccinated against HPV. And finally, at I Smell Updog tweets, is it weird for a guy to have plan B in his nightstand? It's uncommon, but I don't think it's weird. As for what it says about the guy, it depends on his intent. Plan B, emergency contraception, which is available over the counter for now. It's effective up to three days after unprotected sex, but the sooner a woman takes it after unprotected sex, the more effective it is. So if a guy has plan B in his nightstand because a condom broke once and there wasn't a pharmacy nearby and his partner had to wait a day or two before they could get their hands on some, having some plan B around in case of future emergencies, thoughtful and considerate. There are lots of women out there with condoms in their nightstands. Why shouldn't a guy have some plan B in his but if a guy keeps plan B in his nightstand because he doesn't want to wear a condom and pressures the women he sleeps with to go bare because they can just take some of his plan B in the morning instead, yeah, that guy's an asshole. All right. If you want me to read your tweet on an upcoming episode of the Savage Lovecast, be sure to include the hashtag Savage Lovecast. And now your response calls. Hi, Dan. This is the farmer from 728. I decided that I was just going to go pre-pandemic route and keep my mouth shut. My employee seems really happy right now, and I don't want to ruin his potentially budding relationship or even just a new friendship for him. And people that are getting laid tend to be better workers. So thanks so much for your call. Hi, this is a response call for the 17-year-old girl who just lost her virginity. I just wanted to assure you that everything you described sounds like a completely standard first time. I lost my virginity in almost the exact same manner over 10 years ago. My boyfriend was really hard. We had been messing around. He put on the condom, tried to go in, and lost his erection. Claimed he wasn't nervous, but clearly something was going on. So instead of stressing about it or fretting or putting any focus on it, I just put on some music, and we just laid there and just talked about other stuff. And all of a sudden, his erection came back. It's totally fine. The only thing I can suggest is if you're used, I hope you're using condoms, but have extra condoms because if he does have an erection and then he loses it, his condom's not going to fit right. And the best thing to do would be to remove that condom and throw it away and use a new one if his erection comes back. So hope it goes better next time. Hey, Dan, I just want to respond to the caller in your last episode who had just uh, lost one of their many V cards and was kind of concerned about her partner pushing rope 
And uh, obviously, your advice on ED is always so amazing. Um, you cured my ED um, when I was having performance anxiety. You told me, you know, just be open before the session starts and just say, hey, I might not get hard this time. And that's totally okay. And we can still have lots of fun. And just saying that makes me hard every time because you're right. It takes all the pressure off. So I think even though your advice was great, you know, just she should kind of do the opposite of what I did and just tell him, hey, you know, you know, I know you didn't get super hard last time. That's totally okay. And if you don't, we're still going to have tons of fun. And I'm like excited to be here. Literally, that is the best uh, aphrodisiac. Thanks, Dan. And we're going to leave it there. Got a question or comment for a future episode of the Savage Lovecast? There are two ways to get them to us. You can call us at 206-302-2064, or you can use the Voice Memo app on your phone to record your question or your comment and email it to us at voicemail at savagelovecast.com. Great news for fans of my Dirty Little Porn Festival, Hump. We're releasing a second volume of Hump's greatest hits starting on November 6th. This will be another great show featuring some of our favorite dirty movies from the last 15 years of Hump. Go to humpfilmfest.com to get your tickets. And have you started making your film for Hump 2021? The 16th Annual Hump Film Festival is coming right up. Now is the time to get creative and get humping. Submissions are due on December 4th. So go to humpfilmfest.com slash submit to find out how you can make and submit a film to Hump and possibly win large cash prizes. And don't forget to grab your tickets for Hump's sister film festival, Slay, our indie horror festival that starts this week on October 15th. Go to slayfilmfest.com to watch it trailer and get your tickets follow me on twitter at fake dan savage follow cory doctoro on twitter at doctoro the savage Lovecast is produced every week by nancy hartunian and me and the tech savvy at risk youth and nancy we'll all be back at you next week for an installment of the savage Lovecast. thank you for downloading